In case you're wondering, no, this sweater did not win the ugliest sweater. But I like it. This past Monday, before I started preparing for this morning, I really wasn't sure where I wanted to start. And my quiet time reading was 1 Thessalonians, which happens to be probably my, first, my favorite of Paul's writings. And at the end of chapter 1, it reads, You turn to the God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We live in a time when the news is dominated with fear. Yes, there are wars, but nothing compares to the rising hysteria over the climate. And regardless of what you, where you land on the whole climate crisis and concern, what struck me as I read that last verse is that no one seems the least bit concerned anymore about the possibility that God could be coming again with wrath. So this Christmas Eve, we will take a brief look at why the first coming of Jesus was the best gift ever. We've been unwrapping Christmas, best gift ever, and why he mattered then and why he matters now. Because what you believe about him can provide the only remedy that I'm personally aware of that can address both climate concerns and the inevitable wrath of God. Let's pray and jump in. Father, thank you so much for the songs and the addition of another family to your grace body here and for what we've already heard and how remarkable it is that the video that you put on Mitch's heart is essentially the points of the message. So thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that what you have, the words that you have provided are, are going to be spoken by me in a way that could touch a live or two this morning, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A story is told in many a Jewish household this time of year about a young bride making her first important big dinner for her husband. She decides she's going to lay her, try her hand at her grandmother's brisket. And she begins by immediately cutting the ends of the brisket off. Because that's the same thing that her mother had always done. And after the meal, her husband goes, baby, that was delicious. But why in the world did you cut off the best part? She just turned to him and says, I have no idea. It's what my mother always did. So the following week, they went to grandma's for Hanukkah. She went over to her grandmother and goes, Grandma, why do we cut the ends off of the brisket? And her grandmother, an old Jewish lady, the darling, it's the only way it would fit in my pan. <laughs> Jewish households tell this story to teach that we should be questioning the things that we just routinely do. Rituals and observances are nice, but they have little to no value if we don't understand the reasoning behind them. 
Tomorrow's Christmas, a tradition founded on a baby boy coming into the world 2,000 some odd years ago in Bethlehem. A boy who would grow up and become the savior of the world. So let me be clear up front. If Jesus isn't the savior he claimed to be, then Christmas is just a lovely cultural celebration and meeting like this is about as big a waste as cutting the ends off of a brisket. Because if Jesus is the savior, it needs to mean something. And I would posit the reason we're here is because it does. We here at Grace believe that Jesus is the savior he claimed to be. And to make our case this morning, we will be looking at the traditional and familiar Christmas passage in Matthew chapter 2 with one question in mind. What was the response of the characters in that narrative to what God was doing that very first Christmas? Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men, that would be Magi in the original, from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The word worship there is really not that great because what it really meant was to honor. That's what you did back in those days. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Many if not most of us, are familiar with this passage. It's a story. And for some of you, that's exactly what it is. Just a story. If that's you, my hope is that the Lord might change your mind about that this morning because every one of us who believe in Jesus, broadly speaking, were one of the three kinds of unbelievers in this story. We were either similar to Herod and hostile, similar to the religious people and indifferent, or like the Magi and curious enough to go seeking that king. First, we're going to look at Herod. By all accounts, Herod was a shrewd and horrible king. He, put, he was put in power by the Romans. And scholars believe he was Jewish, but not Jewish enough for the people that he was reigning over. When the Magi came and asked him about this newborn king of the Jews, he went directly to the chief priests and scribes, did you catch it, of the people. Notice they weren't his chief priests and scribes. They were the people's. We're not going to spend a lot of time on Herod other than to say that he represents the kind of people who only know what other people say about Jesus and become openly hostile and condescending whenever spiritual aspects of Christmas are brought up. You've met him. The Herods of today typically attempt to marginalize and humiliate anyone who could believe in anything as ridiculous as a virgin-born anything. The mere suggestion that Jesus being savior of humanity is laughable to them. If that were all, it would be bad enough. 
But Herod was powerful, and so deeply disturbed by the possibility of a rival being born, he started scheming right out of the gate. He lied to the Magi and eventually wound up sending his soldiers to Bethlehem to commit mass murder. The man was despicable in almost every way imaginable. So if you aren't a believer this morning, the fact that you're here means you're unlikely to have that kind of open hostility about Jesus. So let's move on to the second group. The next unbelieving group in this narrative, and make no mistake, the chief priests and scribes in this story as a group were plenty religious, but they are not believers. When the chief priests and teachers of the law were asked where the Messiah was born, they simply answered the question matter-of-factly and went back to their business. Part of that could have been the possibility that neither Herod or the chief priests and scribes had any use for one another. They flat out did not like one another. The historical record is very clear. Herod was a puppet of Rome, and they didn't like one another. And I get that, but look at verse 3 again with me. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem. Picture the scene. These are magi. They're foreign dignitaries who have traveled with a considerable entourage. A slew of Gentiles comes into Jerusalem, a Jewish city, and they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. I suspect that just like anything else like this, rumors had to be rampant. They didn't have the internet, so they couldn't just be texting everybody that what was happening is they was, there was absolute panic. What's going on here? And what was the response of the religious leaders? Eh, try, try Bethlehem. This is unbelievable to me. Why weren't they the least little bit excited? Why weren't they even interested enough to go with them to see what was possible? It can be no other conclusion other than it was irrelevant to them. They weren't interested at all because they were quite content with how life was going. And it didn't matter a lick to them what God might be doing. The God they were allegedly serving, I might add, what is he doing? What is God up to? Nothing. Is this you this morning? Thinking Gee, Christmas is fine, but God, even if there is one, doing something of spiritual significance at that very first Christmas? Have you landed on doubtful? Perhaps you identify with that newly married wife from earlier. Not really thinking much about the, the motions of what you do in life like coming to church around Christmas time. It's simply what your family's always done. Like cutting the ends off the brisket. Christmas comes around, it's time to buy some gifts, maybe watch a parade, go to a few parties, maybe come to, go, to, go to church with the family. For you, Christmas really has nothing to do with the birth of your Savior. Like the religious leaders of the time, the spiritual significance of Christmas is pretty much irrelevant to you. If that's you, then consider the third characters of our story, the Magi. Scripture doesn't elaborate a lot on them, 
But what it does say follows the cultural expectations of the time. A king had been born, and unlike the others in this story, they went out of their way seeking that king to honor him and bring him gifts of great value. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, all of us know that gold's worth a lot, but we're not first century people. Frankincense and myrrh don't mean a whole lot to us, but I tell you, they were of enormous value at the time. But how do we square that with Acts 17, 25, which tells us that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything? Jesus didn't need anything, even as a baby. But Mary and Joseph did, because as I said, Herod, in a short period of time, is going to start annihilating any child, any boy under the age of two in Bethlehem. And the scholars posit that providentially, God had those magi bring those gifts so that Mary and Joseph would have the means to escape to Egypt. That's certainly possible. We don't have any quibble with that. However, let us not consider just that. Let's consider, instead of the gifts, their motives. When we give a gift, what are we saying? Aren't we saying that we care enough about you to take our time and money to find something of significance for you? Or at least that's the idea behind it. We're not like some who are just on the way to the house and they stop at the 7-Eleven and say, what do we got? What are we? That's not you. If you care, then you look to have something of value and significance. What's the most valuable thing any of you have? Don't overthink this. It's you. Scripture tells us in 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. What's the devil's primary work? Keeping you from being interested in seeking God. Paul would then write in 1 Timothy 1 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners is just a church word. You know, it really is. You know, none of us uses the word sinner in our everyday language. Not one of us. Even us that are staff. You know, we're not talking sinner all the time. It's just a church word that means we fail to be perfectly holy. That we fail to be perfectly, not one off, can't make one mistake. You're not perfectly righteous. In other words, every single one of us. Before continuing, this is the Christmas season, and I wasn't sure where I was going to put this in, but this is where it landed, so I feel the need to say a word to those of you that are here or might be listening in that have heavy hearts today. After this baby grew into man, one day he would say, come unto me, you who are heavy burdened. There are some of you here this morning carrying a heavy burden. For some of you, a loved one has died this year, or a relationship has failed, or something or someone precious to you was lost. 
These are heavy burdens. Difficulties some have yet to have, frankly. Some of you have, and recently, and it hurts. This baby Jesus would eventually offer himself up for you and me to satisfy a debt that none of us is able to pay. And in doing so, he opened a door to a comfort and joy in spite of the emotional tolls that we come our way in this life. This is what Jesus can provide as your savior. Comfort in the face of losses, climate concerns, or God's coming wrath for that matter. It's not lost on me that this defies all rules of empirical evidence and logic. Because that's the thing about faith. God's faith, faith in him, demands that we do. You have to put some of this aside. I, have, I will admit that freely. And this is why Jesus is the best and greatest gift ever. When considering Jesus, we are similar to the Magi, at least in this extent. But we bring the gift of ourself. The gift Jesus gives us is not just himself. Which would, by the way, would be enough. He gives us reconciliation with his father. We're not going to go into it this morning, but this is our biggest problem. That whole wrath of God thing coming isn't a problem if you're in Jesus. just isn't. If you read your scripture, you'd know that that's the only remedy. No one comes to the Father, what? But by me. He gives us reconciliation with his Father. You get him, his Father, and the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. You, get, you have them all or you have none. As we've been unwrapping Christmas this Advent, both John and Mitch have already noted the centricity of the gospel in that. The last time I spoke, I gave you a TLA, didn't I? Anybody remember what a TLA is? A three-letter acronym. And what is the three-letter acronym for the gospel? Anyone? Wow, I failed. I'm so disappointed. AJB. The All Jesus Believers Gospel. Right? All have sinned. Jesus didn't, which therefore made him an acceptable sacrifice for our shortcomings. He was crucified, died, and buried, and rose again. Amen? Believe that, and Jesus is your Savior. Period. The end. Your entire life changes the very second you surrender your life to him. It's amazing. None of you knew me, other than Sherry, the day that I surrendered to Jesus. And it's remarkable what Jesus can do in your life. 
If you are willing to humble yourself and believe that this baby Jesus of Christmas reconciled us with his father when he did what he did for us at Easter, if you're willing to believe that, you are saved. There's no fine print. There's no, you got to do that and something else. No, that's it. That's all there is to it. Believe that about Jesus, and he accepts you with open arms as your savior. And by the way, so does his father. The choice is always yours. You are welcome to treat all of this just like as the religious leaders did, essentially dismissing the entire thing and going right back to your life tomorrow. My hope is if you walked in here as an unbeliever this morning, that it would be more like the Magi and want to learn more about this baby king. For those of us who do believe in Jesus as our savior this morning, which I suspect would be most of you, there's a challenge embedded in that. Francis Schaeffer put it the most beautifully I've ever heard. How then shall we live? Hebrews 7, 5, excuse me, Hebrews 5 tells us, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Jesus taught many things while he lived among us on earth. One of the more remarkable was recorded for us in John chapter 8, which we studied a couple of years ago. During an exchange with the Pharisees in verse 29, Jesus said that he only, only did what pleased his father. My question this morning for all of us is, how in the world did he do that? Easy, simple. He asked. If you're wondering why you don't care for people the way Jesus did, the answer could simply be you don't pray enough. The people who enjoy the peace of God that passes all understanding are those who in everything by prayer and supplication let their requests be made known to God. If any of you are curious about the differences between prayer and supplication, you can look them up, but supplication is a desperate plea, generally speaking, historically for mercy. Prayer is a two-way conversation. By the way, if you take the time and bother to look up the definition of prayer and you Google it or you do it on your Apple device, you're going to get the same thing. You're going to have to go down seven different definitions before you're going to find one that says anything of spiritual significance. And it, by the way, in both cases, it's the Billy Graham website, and he's the only one that is willing to write in the definition that prayer is a two-way conversation. And you know what that implies? At some point, you have to stop talking. You have to listen. Jesus listened. And I can tell you, you guys know it. In every endeavor you have in this life, quiet is unnerving to people. You ask for a moment of prayer, and it's a moment because if it lasts more than 10 seconds, people are fidgeting. 
You got to give the devil his due. He's got all of us. We got to keep going. We got to keep at it. We got to do. We got to do. No, you don't. Read your gospel slowly and what you will see about Jesus as he grew up and became a man and was in the ministry was he set himself apart to pray. I only do what pleases my father. The only way that's possible is if we can shut up long enough to listen. I'm telling you, I do it every day, and it is hard. But if you don't do it, then the only thing that's banging around in your head are your own thoughts. When we pray, we need to listen. And that's the part that they don't make available on the first landing page when you want to know how to pray. Because best that I can tell, the devil's got a good hold on the internet as well. So the keys that unlock the treasure chest of God's peace and is faith in his promises, which is why Paul prays in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Don't stop there because the next two words matter. In believing. You just don't get it. You know, we sing these songs, peace on earth. The next words matter more than those. With, for those with whom he is pleased. They didn't put that in the lyrics. It's like an inconvenient truth. There's no peace on earth or peace with God unless he's pleased with you. How does he get pleased with you? Very simply. By believing in the completed work of his son on your behalf. How do we wrap this up? Head, heart, and hands today are going to be summed up in one single verse. Well, you've been around and know when I get a chance to speak at the end of the year, you know what's coming. <laughs> Second Corinthians 13.5. 5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail that test? This coming week, and your Monday email will be coming Tuesday as a one-off so that you can be not looking at emails but enjoying your family tomorrow. Look back on 2023 and ask yourself, am I seeking to be more like Jesus than I was at the end of last year? See, if you do this every week, it's not, you, can't, you haven't had enough time to elapse to actually get a sense for, is anything really any different? And here, if you're not sure, then find somebody that you trust, that you see as a spiritual mentor or a spiritual friend in the faith and asked him, how am I doing? Am I more like Jesus this year than I was last year? Am I? Do you care what God wants you to do 
today? Brilliant. <laughs> From the mouth of babes, huh? The answer should be yes. Every day, without exception, wake up, spend time, even if it's button it up. What do you got for me, Lord? Read some scripture. What have you got for me, Lord? Divine appointments, they happen every day for every single one of you. What are you doing with them? Are you even looking for them? Regardless of your answer, whether you are or you aren't, more like Jesus. The, rec the recommendation does not change. Do what Jesus did. It ain't brain surgery. I'll tell you that. You don't have to go to school for six years or seminary to know what this is. He prayed and asked him, and you need to as well, what do you want from me today? What can I do today in a way that will please the Father? That's what Jesus did every single day. If each of us would commit to doing that, there's no telling what he would do through us as Grace Church in the coming year. Let's pray. Father, what a great word. It spoke to me. I hope it spoke to some that are here as a reminder of how you are always at work. Blackaby had it right. You're always doing something. And are we even looking to participate? I pray, Lord, that in some small way that the words and the story of Herod the religious leaders, and the Magi will touch hearts this morning, for I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.